Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Managing Editor of Television for Variety, and today my guest in New York is David Faber. David is co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk on the Street and a veteran business reporter. He's broken many big stories on the media beat, most recently the bombshell news that Rupert Murdoch was negotiating the sale of most of his Fox empire to Disney. Here David talks about the state of media M&A, the growing threat posed by the tech giants, and his take on what happens next for CBS and Viacom. David Faber, thanks for stopping by on what it, on a busy news day, but when isn't it a busy news day in business news these days? Uh, things have been busy, and, and today is definitely one of those days for sure. <laughs> thanks for making time for us. Um, you have been at CNBC since 1993, covering, breaking tons of news, and really distinguishing yourself on the media beat in terms of your access to influential people and, and breaking news. The big story that rocked that rocked everybody's world back in November was the news that Disney and Fox were in negotiations. I know better than to ask you how you got that story, but I want to ask you what your what were your thoughts when you first stumbled into this news? W- was it disbelief? Did you you know the idea that Rupert Murdoch could be a seller is still hard for people to wrap their ma- minds around? Um, it was. You know, it's funny. Uh, and obviously, I won't go through every single uh, <laughs> bit of it. Um, but when I first heard about the possibility from somebody I knew, knew it, I still couldn't, even though I didn't question the source, I, I couldn't, to your point, understand it. The idea that, wait, wait a second, what? Fox, Fox is selling to Disney uh, was just not something that I was able to wrap my head around at that point, which, of course, as you know, then simply means you got to do a lot more reporting. Not that I wouldn't have anyway, but in this case, it's not, it was not even close. Even though it was an unimpeachable source, you start to wonder things like, well, did they misunderstand something that they were told? Did, you know? And um, it was through the reporting that I suddenly was like, it's true. He is a seller. He has made a hyper-rational decision, as people will tell you, Rupert Murdoch is a hyper-rational person, that now is the time to sell, aided to a certain extent by James, I think, who also shared in that view, at least, of the changing landscape and Fox's place in it. Um, and it was interesting because I had had a previous source who had told me there was potentially one big deal yet to do for Fox. And I had, of course, as everybody would think, thought, oh, what are they going to buy? Right. And it was only after the reporting and then really digging in and finally nailing it. But then I suddenly was like, of course, it wasn't to buy. It was to sell. And it all kind of fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the Fox Disney deal is probably the, the largest expression of this, you know, a pervasive Fear bear, bordering on paranoia, it seems to me, in the traditional media industry. The heavyweights of the size of Fox and Disney and Comcast, parent company of CNBC and CBS and Viacom, all these, all these big companies that we've for years referred to as media giants because they were created from, from con- previous waves of consolidation. Th- this expression of this fear in the industry of what's become known as the FANG companies Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. 
Do you think, is there any chance that some of that fear is an overreaction to the threat that as these, as Netflix and Facebook's really start to amp up their own video strategies? I, uh, sure. I mean, I think uh, we've both probably been around long enough. Sometimes you, you, you hear things uh, in the industry and everybody's reacting to it and saying the, the, uh, the sky is falling and it doesn't end up. AOL Time Warner. I mean, I can remember when that deal was announced and many of the prominent people in the media industry, many of whom are still, by the way, in the same industry, <laughs> they tend not to go anywhere, uh, were like, this is it. This is changing everything. And, of course, it changed virtually nothing except for unfortunate shareholders of, of Time Warner. In the 401ks of Time Warner employees. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but when you do think about what, for example, the Murdoch family was considering uh, in terms of scale and the way distribution is changing so dramatically um, and the unlimited deep pockets of whether it's a Netflix or even more so if they were to actually start to pay for content of Facebook or a Google or, or even an Apple, you, you do have to wonder how it is without scale, really significant scale and access to enormous amounts of capital, you'll be able to play in this emerging, really kind of, I, we always say emerging, but it's really kind of here, here and now. Um, so I get it, but yeah, a, a lot of times it does tend to be a bit of an overreaction. I think, I mean, the thing that, that is so striking in talking to, talking to people in the industry, the thing that is so striking to, to traditional media people is the global nature. The fact that Netflix can push a button and it's got a show in 200 countries. Facebook obviously has a big footprint to work from. Amazon is starting to get its act together and really get more, more global. Um, do you think that these companies with these big footprints, Net, Netflix is a different case because Netflix wants to own television. They will tell you that anytime you ask them. But, but for a Facebook and an Amazon, do you detect a sense that video is kind of a the kind of a a side venture that isn't that certainly isn't isn't core to the business of Amazon do you get the sense that there is less seriousness than maybe the the, the traditional media is responding to you know i wish i could i wish and i think we all wish we really could understand exactly what it is amazon is thinking <laughs> or what bezos really his plan is given how much they're spending it's hard for me to imagine it's not an important um, effort for them. We know it is. What's it going to be this year? At least $6 billion probably that Amazon is going to spend. Number two, right? I, I think, think they're, they're just, they're a touch behind Netflix. So that right. would be about it's, right. Netflix is at least eight. At least that's on balance sheet. But right. <laughs> I mean, it, these are enormous sums. Um, but obviously they do have a lot of other businesses at Amazon that we consider more core, certainly the, the retail business and then Amazon Web Services. But I do think it's a real effort I do think when people talk about them bidding on NFL rights, that's not just made up stuff by the NFL to try to get CBS really scared. Uh, <laughs> I do think there is really something to that. Facebook video is their business, but not in the way we think about it. It's all user-generated content and things of that nature and, 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 and obviously taking other people's. In terms of them actually producing more or really paying for it, I don't know if they'll ever get there, because this model has worked awfully well. Now, there is some question right now in particular about the model itself, given um, privacy and given what we saw Zuckerberg go through uh, a week or so ago in Congress. But, um, but Facebook is much more of a question mark to me. I mean, Amazon is out there. What did they just buy that culvers? They just, I mean, the studios in L.A. and they are, they are an enormous influence right now today in terms of at least developing content and obviously distributing it. They are planting a big flag, yeah. for sure. Yeah. 
Um, do you think, I guess the other side of that question is a lot of people, you know, I'm sure you hear it, you know, people in traditional media complain about Netflix can write these big checks, big eye-popping checks, and they don't have to, they, it doesn't have to show up on the net income line, at least at this point. What do you think, what do you get the sense of investors' appetite or uh, patience for Netflix in terms of really turning around real profits? I think it's fairly unlimited right now because everybody seems very much focused on growing the subscriber base. Um, and we saw Netflix report earnings earlier this week when we're uh, talking here, and, and they were incredible numbers. They were far above what people had anticipated in terms of subscriber growth, and their guidance was even above that. To your point, they're growing globally at a very rapid pace, and the business, the operating leverage is actually going in the right direction. They're increasing their operating leverage in part because they're just – the footprint keeps growing and the costs are not that much greater other than doing more marketing. But even with that, operating leverage is going up. So I think they have a good deal of patience yet to come from investors. As long as that subscription role continues to grow at a rapid pace, then everybody's going to feel like the thesis is in place. And I know it's very frustrating for those who are measured by different metrics, whether it's a Disney or anybody else. And it is somewhat reminiscent of Walmart's complaints for years against Amazon well, they're just measured differently. They don't ever get penalized for not making any money, and we therefore can't make the kinds of investments that we would want to um, is a complaint that you would hear. It's also something you hear with Tesla, which for a long time, although that may be changing a bit, takes us off course, I know, mm -hmm, a little bit, mm -hmm, but yeah. again, had a higher market value than GM for a time, barely makes any number of automobiles, but some of these companies are just treated differently. Yeah, I think certainly for Netflix, the, the the clear evidence that even a price hike, you know, a gradual price hike isn't slowing that torrid momentum, I think that got a lot of people's attention. Yeah, the ability to, to as they say, take price while you're growing your subscription roles and increasing marketing spending, but getting operating leverage going in the right direction. Well, that's why the market cap of Netflix is what, about $145 billion? It's not that far away from Disney. No, they're right. They're right. It's, and Netflix. It's shocking. And Netflix is the tiniest of the fang of the fang stocks. Yes, it is. As Apple, you know, flirts with the trillion. Yeah, Apple's at over eight hundred billion, and and and, uh, and Amazon over seven. So yeah, the size of these of these organizations is enormous. To your point, Netflix not really in terms of its its market cap. Um, I think in some ways this argument that we're going to continue to hear more and more about about market power, and 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 the size of an Apple, or an Alphabet or a Facebook, or an Amazon in particular. I don't know that it's going to go anywhere in terms of regulatory action, but you're hearing it a lot more, and I think that will only grow. So that's the one thing the media companies can hope for, I guess. Exactly. Um, do you think Netflix could, could use that stock for currency right now? You know, you mentioned the AOL Time Warner deal, and that has been such a cloud hanging over hot shot, digital hot shots that come into the market. But, you know, based on the, the most recent earnings report, that sure looks real. It's funny. I hadn't thought, you know, he's never s talked about being acquisitive mm -hmm. of these things at all. I, I, I think you have a hard time finding somebody who's willing to take that, take that paper, at least large scale. Um, and I'm not aware of anything. Everything they've done, they've built for the most part. And the talent, they've just paid for the talent. Um, that, that'd be really interesting. I hadn't even, it's funny, for a, for a long while, as you well know, it, people were, always would speculate, would Apple ever try and make a move? Many years ago, of course, it was Amazon who 
some thought before they got into the business would want to make a move on Netflix. But rarely, if ever, have I actually thought about Netflix doing another acquisition. Although I guess buying buying a studio might help them. I guess I don't know. You might you'd know more than I would. <laughs> there's there's some people in Hollywood with big dreams <laughs> about that about that right now. Um, anything you know? Of course, media M and A has been. We've had waves of it. You know. 20 years ago, it was driven by a deregulatory push under the Clinton administration that brought a lot of people together. Obviously, the, 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 the looming specter of the tech sector is driving, but anything else stand out to you as unusual this time around? We're in one of those moments of everybody's talking to everybody. Well, I, what I would say, and I talk a lot about this on CNBC right now, is the rules of the road when it comes to regulatory and antitrust are in a bit of a muddle right now. Uh, we currently have AT&T and Time Warner in court against the Department of Justice arguing that their deal will not be any competitive. Many people have wondered why that case was brought, and some have ventured to say it's really because the president right now doesn't like CNN, which of course is owned by Time Warner. Um, you have questions around some large technology deals right now because they're wrapped up in the growing trade tensions with China. This morning I spent a lot of time talking about Qualcomm and uh, a chip company called NXP. But I mention it because right now it's very difficult to know if you are a media company considering consolidation, how you're going to be viewed from an antitrust lens. And that can make things a little bit more difficult. Questions that might not have been asked in the past, such as, well, will this be a story that ends up on the front page of the paper or is featured on the Fox network in terms of uh, the president getting getting his attention. <laughs> In all seriousness, for does real, it, does yeah. it take away jobs or add jobs? Uh, does it involve any foreign companies in any way? These are all questions that are of vital importance now. I am told by the experts who try and advise, and it's really hard if you're a CEO considering doing something to make a, a decision you feel is is uh, going to be the right one in terms of a deal. So that's that's one thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, And so if you do actually get what would be an unexpected result here, namely the government winning, that will have a chilling effect on a lot of deals, including, you know, things that might take place in the media industry. Right, right. Um, you co- Obviously, you cover sectors beyond media. Mm-hmm. What, what is it about, is it the, is it, what is it about media that, that makes it such a vibrant sector, such a, such a sexy sector? Is it just the fact that these are, you know, a lot of these companies are household names. They come into people's homes. What is it that makes media sort of unique as a sector to cover? I think part of it is just it's something that so many of us are familiar with. So there are brand names we're familiar with. We're, broadly speaking, many people are familiar with the actual product itself. Um, and it's in everybody's lives. So it would always appeal to me in part because of that. It's just something you could actually understand because you were dealing with it, whether it was telecommunications, which I also tended to focus on through the years, or media itself. I also think that you do, you did have for a period of time a lot of controlled companies and outsized personalities running them. And in Sumner part, Redstone, Rupert Murdoch, Brian Roberts even. Brian Roberts to a certain extent, John Malone, people who are willing to speak their minds and not afraid to do so, in part because they didn't have to worry about shareholders they had uh, so much control of their companies, yeah. control. 
And so that always made it Barry Diller. Um, that always has made it fun and interesting. Just the, the personalities that tended to be congregated in this particular area. Not that there aren't other CEOs who actually are willing to say something. Sometimes it's interesting or be, you know, different. Elon Musk comes to mind. Sure. But, you know, think about think about these guys versus like Jeff Bezos, who is arguably the most impressive and powerful businessman in the country. You never hear from him. You never, you don't, what do you know about him, really? What has he ever shared? Hardly anything versus Rupert Murdoch or Sumner Redstone or, or, or so many, you know, or back in the day, Eisner even, even though he wasn't a controlling shareholder, still sort of these outside personalities. Right. Is it, from time to time, of course, you have to cover things that involve Comcast and involve NBC Universal and in the past involve General Electric. Is it touchy? Is there a particular process for covering your own company? It's a great question. Um, I will say through the years, GE and now Comcast, thankfully, and and, uh, Brian Roberts and Steve Burke, who runs NBCU, have never once, and I'm happy to say never once uh, ever indicated, said, done anything to interfere with my reporting in any way, shape, or form. That said, you you try to let the viewer know, without a doubt, I'm an employee of this company. (laughs) And by the way, we're not allowed to own any stock at CNBC, but... I do own Comcast because it can be part of some people's compensation as it is sure. a, a bit of, of mine. And so we do tell people that. Um, but, you know, the, this morning I was on being, I wouldn't say critical of Comcast, but um, laying out what we all saw in the background of the, to the transaction for Disney Fox that just came out in a filing last night. And Comcast, you know, it wasn't necessarily in their best interest in terms of at least some of the things we're reporting. There's never any been any backlash whatsoever i treat them like i treat every other company i know people may find that hard to believe and unfortunately they treat me the same way so (laughs) i never like i never get a scoop on comcast i mean i'm always the dreamworks deal i'm like guys really Uh, i mean i can go on and on never so if that maybe that can be at least some evidence that i'm really not getting uh you know favorable uh, or favoritism at least yeah i hear you um you have a great relationship with John Malone. You, you, you do almost an annual interview with John Malone. How did, how did that develop? Is it ju- just from professional contacts, or was there some personal backstory to how you... You know, I, I've spent time with him. It's been 20 years, I think. Um, I can remember the first time I ever went up to him years ago when he was the CEO of TCI, and, and it was a gaggle of people. He, they'd, I think they'd had their annual um, analyst day or maybe it was their annual meeting. I don't remember which. And I went up to him and I was sort of like, Mr. Malone. And I asked him some complicated question that I thought was very impressive. And, and he looked at me and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was like, he's like, I don't understand what it is you're actually asking me. Uh, I said, well, I'm trying to, da, da, da. And I don't even remember exactly. It was something fairly technical about, you know, wireless was just starting then and, cable and wireless anyhow but uh i kept at it and um and through the years he finally you know he agreed to be interviewed and i think he appreciated the fact that i spent a lot of time and effort to really understand the company and the industry and you do that once or twice a year for 20 years you start to get to know each other a bit you certainly develop a rapport um and so you know he's comfortable with me and I'm comfortable with him. And, uh, yeah, it's become kind of an annual tradition. I wish it was a little bit more because I think there are times we'd like to hear from him. Although <laughs> you can hear from him. I don't need to bring him on to get a hold of him. But, uh, 
But it's been a really interesting relationship for me, and, I, and one I hope will continue for many years to come. Yeah. Always, there are always good interviews. Thank you. What do you think in just in general about the volatility of the Dow right now? We're at historic highs, you know, sudden, you know, nowadays a 300-point swing either way doesn't even, it, it almost seems to, it's like you've got to be sub 500 before people really stand up. Does that, do you think is this, is there a big correction coming as a lot of people have speculated? I have no idea. Um, yeah, the Dow points, people shouldn't focus on it, as you know. It's just percentages at this point when you get up to 24,000. We're not talking about a lot, even though it feels like a lot, because those of us who remember when the Dow was 2,000, <laughs> 200 points feels like an awful lot. Um, I tend to focus more on the S&P, which is sort of a broader uh, reflection of the, of the, of the market. Um, but we do have a lot of volatility this year. We got lulled into a kind of a sense of complacency because last year the market was, there was no volatility at all. It was a good year. Yeah. It was a great year, and it was sort of just every day we kind of went up. 20, I don't know, 25 basis points or whatever it might have been. I'm exaggerating, but it was just a relentless climb higher. Um, there's a lot of worries about exogenous events, for lack of a better term, right? Whether it's North Korea uh, or, or the current disputes with China, which is really of importance, uh, or even things in the Mideast, which may have a tendency to push up the price of oil, which can have an impact. Beyond even just us focusing on the fundamentals of the underlying U.S. economy and whether interest rates are going to go up and by how much they're going to go up and how long we've had the bull market. So it's kind of more a return to normalcy, I think, in some ways, this volatility as opposed to anything else. But there are a couple of things we haven't had to deal with, not to mention the, just the day-in, day-out saga of the, of the White House right now. And the unpredictability there. Yes, yeah. exactly. Gotcha. Um, you know, our world is awash in information, instantaneous information. You know, 20 years ago, it was revolutionary that CNBC was on the air on a, in a real-time basis. Now, there is so much info, information at people's fingertips, and, you know, markets will react in a nanosecond. And you'll see, you know, major swings one way or another on good news, bad news. You know, um, do you, is that, is that, does that influence that media coverage can have on a company, on a, on a, headline um, on interpretation, one analyst report, you know, with an upgrade or a downgrade. Do you, yeah. Is that something you think about before you go on air with something in terms of the potential impact on a market You know, I or a company? Yeah. I mean, of course, I always think about it. And I used to think about it back 20 years ago as well when, when there still was everybody who was just reading the newspaper in the morning. <laughs> um, but I, I, in a weird way, I think I've benefited from still sticking with my old standards of not rushing things to air and taking time and taking a deep breath and making sure you make the extra call and just trying to make sure you understand things and present it with context as opposed to rushing on, uh, which I think there's just so much competition now. And the sources of information are not quite as reliable as they had been in the past. I mean, there was a time when if you read it in the journal in the morning, you knew without a doubt it was absolutely true. And the journal still does great reporting, don't get me wrong, but but I, there is a tendency, to your point, because things are moving so quickly for people to rush yeah, uh, or to feel competitive pressure. And I guess that's one benefit, at least, of having done this for so long. If I, I, Not that I don't like to lose a scoop. I hate it. It drives me crazy, but I'm willing to accept it for, the, for, the, uh, you know, for not getting something wrong. Uh, it's better to me to just, well, I missed it. Or a lot of times now you can actually follow up because – 
the story wasn't right to begin with, whatever might have been half broken. So that's an ongoing frustration in some ways in terms of getting deeper into journalism here. There's so many stories that are reported that are not quite right, but there's a part of it that's right, and people are just willing to go with it. It must be hard when you're on the air. You're on the air from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. live Monday through Friday, and you must are, – are things coming into your ear, into your email, and you're juggling – yeah, I am. Now, I'm lucky I have Jim Cramer next to me who's spending <laughs> a lot of the time talking. So I'm able to uh, multitask. Uh, people do. I get texts from CEOs, which is always interesting. <laughs> That's how they know to communicate with me usually. I'll take a call if I can during a break um, and email. So, yeah, there is a lot of communication going on during the course of the show, particularly as it involves a story that I may be in the midst of reporting on. CBS Viacom comes to mind most recently for, as an example of that. Talk about crazy. Yeah. I mean, you can't write a more, you know, if you were trying to write this, somebody might say, you know, tone, tone that down. I mean, the personalities, the character, the Shakespearean aspects of, you know, family dynamics and person, you know, personality classes, clashes. Do you have a, do you have a guesstimate as to where that heads in the next couple, in the next week or so? I mean, so? you know, I've been reporting on it. You've been reporting on it. Um, I... My last real full story on it, I did something today, but it was more, it was minor in the sense of they are trying, they're making some progress a little bit on the economics and the back and forth between the special committees of both companies. But the intractable issue is this idea of who's going to manage the combined company. And your guess is as good as mine at this point as to where that ends up. I could imagine a compromise. You could. A third way. Yes. It feels like there's got there's to be, got right? There's got to be, right? And that's why you have advisors who will try and try and try again to get Sherry Redstone and Leslie Moonves to a place where they can agree. But, you know, I've been pretty close to this in terms of my reporting, and I have a hard time seeing how either one of them backs off of what they want, um, which is Moonves doesn't want Bob Backish anywhere near this company, basically. I've said this. And Shari Redstone wants him, he's currently the CEO of Viacom, to right. be the number two. Previously, uh, there may have been, there was conversation between Moonves and Redstone uh, that she was willing to not have him be number two, but she always wanted him involved. But now it's been number two, COO, president, and a board member. Can they figure that out? Absolutely. Will they figure that out? I have no idea. And the very public nature of it all, all being spelled out in so many reports also adds, certainly adds a challenge. Yeah. And then, and then the governance issues, she's the controlling shareholder. She, she can do what she wants. She could toss board members and then she could have Leslie Moonves fired. It can absolutely happen. Will she end up in court in Delaware? Most likely. Will that be just a complete mess? Yeah. Does she want that? No. But you know, she's a redstone. Don't forget that. I mean, I know her dad pretty well. And wow. Uh, I mean, he's still with us, but he's not yeah. obviously the man he was. And I mean, talk about tough and stubborn. That DNA runs very deep. Absolutely. Last question before I let you go. Um, private equity is kind of interesting. In the, right now in the media sector, it's land of the giants. So it don't, doesn't seem like we're seeing a lot of influence there. But do you see... Do you see um, opportunities sort of on the margins for, for people out there? I, I keep hearing that there's a lot of money out there looking to park itself in content, but the, the, the marketplace is so scattered that nobody quite knows where to bet. Is that your sense? Yeah. You know, private equity used to be the story in, in mergers and acquisitions 10 years ago when they were 
10, 11, 12 years ago when they were doing amongst the biggest deals out there and the biggest deals by far that had ever been done. Most of those big deals were bad deals, and they pulled back dramatically in terms of their ambitions. But to your point, they do they have they still have raised vast pools of money that they have to put to work. I don't hear that much in 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 media. I mean, there there are some cases that you could do a smaller roll up as a private equity firm that then you would sell whatever it is you've put together to a bigger one of the big players, um, which is sort of the playbook for private equity. Mm-hmm. But um, and it wouldn't shock me if you did see some of that. But you know, I can also remember some private equity firms picking up all the local newspapers because they thought that was you know they were going to be able to f- figure out a way to gain efficiencies and scale, and that ended in bankruptcy. Uh, so I think they're they're being duly cautious when it comes to sort of the media companies or what may be out there to amass. Well, it will be interesting to see all of these all of these threads play out over the next couple of months. David, thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Strictly Business.